Hello, friends, and welcome to Backstory. I'm your host, Alex Roberts. My guest today is Albert Kong, a game designer who invites players to reimagine the rules of the world around them. He's worked in pervasive games, outdoor games, installation art, parkour, and now is making small games. And now he's experimenting with small games, like the Golden Cobra award-winning The Weenus, about dissolving personal identity into a temporary hive mind. It's not a horror game. It's beautiful. If you're at all interested in architecture, poetry, iteration, or the ways that we can build supportive communities of play and creation, stick around for a very cool chat. What brings you to that place? Like rather than because a lot of people on this show specifically yeah. even, but like a lot of people talk to me about not being sure if they belong or feeling like they don't belong or feeling like they're not legitimate or like, am I a game designer? Can I call myself with that? Which like wh- what what puts you in the place of just like happy to be here? Oh, of like uh, of feeling honor yeah. and gratitude. Um, you know, I think it's just a, just the recognition that it's kind of a boring question, you know, like it's not that worth like dwelling on that part of, uh, of, of that feeling, uh, the, the, the imposter side of things. Right. And I think it's actually a lot more interesting to think about, uh, uh, feeling honored, feeling, feeling welcome. I, I was thinking about uh, something that I heard a while ago where, um, Someone, someone was suggesting instead of feeling, instead of feeling sorry for like minor mistakes we make in our lives, instead to, uh, instead of saying sorry to say thank you, instead of saying sorry I'm late, say thank you for waiting. And that pattern seems, uh, you know, that rule um, seems like a like a useful thing to take on in these moments where we have a tendency toward uh, toward shame, right, in our uh, in in our identities and our culture right now. Yeah, totally. And also think of what that does to the other person, right? Like saying sorry kind of puts a burden on them to like make you feel better or to say like, oh, no, no worries. No problem. Don't worry about it. As where thank you is like a nice thing to say to a person. It can make them feel good instead of obligated. Let's talk about language because I just read your, uh, if I can embarrass you a little bit, award-winning game, The Weenus, which... Yeah, I'm really, really glad that I had a chance to sit down with it and spend some time reading through it. Um, it's a game about dissolving your identity into a hive mind um, slowly and voluntarily. And and by voluntarily, I mean like curiously and enthusiastically um, by having a conversation that kind of restricts your use of language like very slowly and gradually. Or I don't know, does it restrict language? Is that the right word for it? Well, that's the word that I use in the um, in the writing of the game. Yeah, like we, we say to restrict. I'm not, I'm not sure that's the right word, um, because it's it's like like how do we talk about like uh, like restricting on one like our, our own restrictions that we make on ourselves? How do we like what what is the right word to use for like uh, deciding to uh, speak in a certain way because we want to. Uh, you know, live toward a certain value or uh, create a certain sense of uh, sociability. You know, the I, I wanted to be I wanted to be gentle about the way that we uh, ask people to to change the language at the beginning, and uh, and then kind of later on it becomes that once you become a group identity to a degree, that's when like it becomes more of a feeling of. Mm, not even restriction then, right? Just, uh, just something that's, uh, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know the right word here because it's such a different way to be, you know, like this, uh, like playing this game. I've played, you know, we originally played it for like, uh, like six or seven hours. It was uh, uh, when we came up with it, and then I've played, I played it for like, uh, like lightly for another like twelve hours with a different group later, and it's just. Like when you try to get into this headspace, it's hard to find language 
to talk about any of the things that happen because it it brings you into a different uh, a different kind of being. Right. So the the first stage or the first step is like you just gently let go of words like I and me, right? Sure. That, I think that's the right. That, that might be the best way to phrase it to let go of of certain. Things. Oh dang! Yeah. You know, I didn't uh, even do that intentionally, yeah. but. <laughs> <laughs> Good job. Yeah. So in in the first stage of the weenus, uh, all the players. Uh, collectively decide to uh, stop saying the word uh, I. And then progressively, you release the words uh, me, myself, and I, other words to refer to yourself. Uh, And then you release the words uh, like indirectly refer to yourself. So that might be pointing to yourself or, uh, you know, talking in the third person. And as you move forward, you We've found, at least, that the uh, language kind of moves toward uh, using words like we and us and and um, and our a lot more. And at that stage, you start to intentionally shift toward uh, thinking as a single being and moving through the world that way. Yeah. And I would like to ask about how intentional you are about, well, two things. The first being subjects of conversation. So you're you're not just saying, oh, have have, you know, talk to some people. But you mentioned things like, you know, talk about first meetings and family gatherings how much of that is like well here what we here's what we talked about or are those kind of intentional suggestions that you found lead to more kind of collective conversations they were i think there there are several prompts that came from the way we played it originally in our first game um and i think it's yeah like when when we started it was uh me and a couple of my friends and uh, uh i was visiting them in berlin and apparently they just have a lifestyle where they can just hang out most of the day and just like sit together and have breakfast and then wander around all day. So we, uh, we, we were having breakfast and at some point I was, they're a very playful group. So whenever I'm hanging out with, uh, with these folks, they're um, very willing to uh, kind of take, I uh, take, you know, playful rules and just see where they'll, where they'll go. And so I was thinking about um, language restriction that morning, and I asked them to pick a word for me that I couldn't say for the rest of the like day. <laughs> I think is what I asked them for, and uh, and then we all decided to uh, to do this together. So they picked the word "I," and uh, and we just had like a weird, uh, strange morning, um, you know, talking without that word. And as we were doing that, it started to, or we started to have these really interesting like philosophical conversations about the consequences of changing our language in this way. And then we started to uh, talk about how we could escalate uh, on, on this, uh, this way of talking. And uh, I remember one of the first, like, we, you know, we, we started moving toward, uh, toward not referring to self at all. And uh, one of the first prompts that we came up with during that conversation was to, to have a prompt about uh, talking about your past self, like t- telling a personal story from the past. And figuring out how to do that without referencing uh, yourself, I think that's when things started to take like a really weird turn, <laughs> because we started questioning like this, uh, like what it feels like to uh, to kind of shift identity entirely, because then all your stories from the past don't really exist anymore, and yeah, then it then it started getting weird. So uh, some of those prompts came from just the conversations that we were having throughout the day and the philosoph- philosophical like uh, questions we were asking. And then uh, during the course of writing the game, um, I you know I came up with a couple more and I consulted with them about like what they might want to add, and I tried to fit them into the game in a way that would progress well. So you made this game by playing it. Yeah, yeah, it was very spontaneous and just felt. Like it felt like so powerful that it it seemed like it needed to be <laughs> to be uh, written up and and shared. I really like the origin story, the idea that this game came from leisure, like just came from having a a period of time where you're not doing anything. There's nothing that you intend to do. I've been thinking about that a lot because I. I don't know if this sounds weird, but I was just reading your Twitter for the past like long time. <laughs> it's part of my job, okay? Uh, and you keep saying the same thing that uh, that my physiotherapist and my massage therapist tell me, um, which is to take unencumbered walks. And in the game, even in in the weenus, you talk about like 
it's not just sit around a, uh, a table and have this conversation, but like go somewhere, go somewhere while you're talking. Um, and that being not separable from the game. Um, tell me about walking. Tell me about why it's important to you. Tell me about the connection between walking around, going places, and what you think about games. Yeah, I mean, I I came to this like all of this stuff through um, doing parkour. I think um, I used to I used to be a really active parkour practitioner, and for me, what it opened up was this idea that seeing the world around you and playing with it in different ways can really transform how you your relationship to it and how you uh, understand it and see it as uh, when you're kind of going through your daily life. And then I went into making street games and uh, live play and games that that interacted with the urban environment through uh, through things like come out and play and uh, other you know, urban games scenes. And um, and I would think I would also add like somewhere in there, you know, I started reading about um, uh, situationism and like Guy Debord's philosophy of uh, and games of psychogeography and uh, and derivation. <laughs> and all these uh, uh, these things that are influenced by reading and uh, engaging with SF Zero, which is this uh, this San Francisco. It started in San Francisco, but it's a it was a large online game that challenged people to do tasks in the real world. Um, so all of that was just was about uh, kind of stepping away from the desk world, I guess, and going out into uh, into the common environments and environments that seem mundane and boring and uh, and and maybe like you know unused and finding contexts for us to be interested in them. I think like you know for me, just kind of the uh, the boring walk or the or you know the aimless walk uh the way that you're uh, that you're talking about and that uh that your physiotherapist is talking about i don't think i had access to that before i don't think i was that interested in it because i would often have a uh a kind of way that i was going through it but i think that's also useful you know i think um i think about this in sort of the the relationship between like walking meditation or like active meditation and sitting meditation where like uh you know you might just like uh walk aimlessly um and you know let your let your mind wander and and um and kind of have that piece of uh, of observation but i think it can be uh at least for me it was always really useful to have uh have games to play in that in that period uh games that that kind of activated a kind of playfulness to the activity and kind of pulled me out to do those things it was hard for me to kind of wander on my own uh, without any any prompting, at the same time, it I think it got me a lot of the benefits of uh, of walking around because I would walk and I would see things and I would take time to just uh, in the world in my body. We are so not done talking about parkour. Oh my goodness! I'm thinking about the way that role playing games kind of replace social rules or add additional ones. You know, it's like follow most of the implicit social rules, but now you have this new rule set. Or, you know, replace these three social rules with these new ones for, you know, a set period of time. And I'm wondering if th there's something in your work that rather than replacing rules sort of invites the player to to come up with new rules or to disregard them or to, I, I, I don't know, what does that yield for you when you're thinking about the, the implicit or sometimes explicit rules of how to interact with the environment. Yeah, I think um, you know, environment when we talk about environment, we talk about spaces. You know, that that includes our social environment and our social spaces, right? Like uh, I think about, you know, if if a playground allows for a certain kind of play, then, you know, a classroom setting also uh, allows for a certain kind of play, the way that a forest invo uh, invites a certain kind of play. Uh, there's for affordances to to architecture, but there's also affordances to uh, to the kind of social spaces that are that are created. And I think that the way that we create those spaces and the way we engage with those um, are the games that we're playing you know, every day, or at least like the structures and systems that we can think of as games. I've been thinking a lot of, about how, about, you know, when we, when we talk about games, a lot of times we talk about agency and how we offer agency to, uh, to people, give people a sense of liberation, a sense of uh, empowerment uh, through, you know, 
giving them choices that that affect the stories that they're uh, that they're engaged in. And I think that we can extend that uh, a lot further than a lot further than just the the uh, sort of isolated um, and contained worlds that we create. But we can figure out how to transcend those and um, and move into looking at the way we engage with our lives as players. And it's like <laughs> I, I, this is like really complicated. Um, I'm trying to figure out how to like how to present this all. Um, okay, so I have this uh, I, I have this idea called the revolutionary game. Uh, it starts with this uh, this recognition that uh, games are everywhere in our lives, um, even the ones that we're not choosing to play. We are constantly in a nested complex of different rule sets that are designed by people. And uh, like all of our social systems that we're, that we're in can be looked at as, uh, as games that we're playing. If we can see that, then I think it opens up a lot of things. It opens up that there are um, implicit rules to, uh, to games that we could make explicit. And if they're explicit, it's also easier to see it as a game. And it's also easier to learn how to play. When we kind of come to a total understanding or a more full understanding of uh, constructed games as you know, as making up our social world, I think it helps us understand that we have the power to construct new games that we can play in the world. And I think that's the kind of uh, social change that I want to I want to see more than uh, more than reform. I want to see the revolution of the ways that we play with each other. I want to see, you know, revolution happening in the small, the small systems that we do have plenty of control over our, our relationships and our families and, uh, and our clubs and our, you know, temporary gatherings of people or parties, um, celebrations. So I guess that's where, that's where um, I am often thinking when I'm designing is how do I create something that can bleed in that way, that can um, give people a sense that they can change uh, their lives in small ways and not be beholden to the cultural rules that uh, that feel persistent and, and uh, oppressive. Right. I, I think I'm hearing you say that there's value in playing a game to realize or to just bring us to slightly greater awareness to the fact that you were playing a game before and you're still playing games. Yeah. I wonder, I mean, I'm totally with you on the perspective of that kind of realization, right? Games are super pliable, they're iterative. And so if that's what social systems consist of, then we can just keep hacking them and keep iterating them. Some games are like not fun and I can't stand them. <laughs> like how, thinking about the difference between games and play, how do we make those games more playful? What's What's the value of bringing like, because I, I don't find that any of your games are like super like dead serious kind of like stereotypical Nordic LARP stuff. There, there, there is always this element of like just being playful and exploring and doing things for their own sake. I, I don't know. Is that, man, I don't even know the question I'm asking. I'm just thinking about playfulness. Yeah, I think, you know, when I started uh, thinking about the social, I don't know, revolutionary game stuff, it started with this idea that not all games are fun not all games are entertainment and you know i'm i'm i think i'm sh i'm shifting from there i'm starting to see that like i think even scenarios that uh that are very serious can be approached in a playful manner i think that uh that sometimes the the thing that makes a set of rules or experience of the of of you know uh, social being unfun is a sense of stuckness, a sense of stiff. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a sense of a, of of uh, disempowerment, and and if you feel like you have to do it, things in a certain way, otherwise all is lost. Then then that doesn't uh, offer a sense of playfulness. But you know, I, like you can you can play even um, the most fantastic scenarios with a sense of seriousness. But the recognition that you are doing it in a playful, uh, it, it, you're playing because you're able to step out of like your daily role and into this character role, I think, um, is the kind of uh, uh, playfulness that allows. And I think like in uh, LARP generally, the the thing, one of the things that it offers is this uh, is this 
opportunity to feel like you are someone that you uh, aren't that you aren't all the time, uh, because we can feel like the person that we uh, have built up, the person that we are um, that we are expected to be, is the only person we're allowed to be. So when we can practice being someone else, that that is a, that is what makes us feel that we are playing something, and uh, that's something that I want to uh, I want to kind of have carry over after the games that I write, I guess. Okay, so this is about putting people in a state of playfulness and then just seeing, okay, you're still in this state as you return to the to the real world, to the systems that you were you were a part of before. But now you're in the playfulness mode. Go see what happens. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> um, yeah, what I mean, like when we were writing, uh, when we were, uh, or when I was writing Weenus, you know, one of the things that we talked about was, is this something that we can turn on, like a mode that we can turn on among people that they can use anytime, right? And we have, we have like plenty of these things actually in, um, in the mundane, like non-game world. Things like you know, I think that uh, that things like um, nonviolent communication, right? Like as a methodology, is a kind of game that that you can you know bring about when you need it, right? Or just generally like mediation is a system that you apply to uh, to change the tone and the environment of the uh, of the kind of com- conversations we're having. So for Weenus, I was thinking, you know, one of the things that we thought, and this is weird because I, I like feel like. I need to constantly uh, switch over to the we frame of uh, of talking whenever I talk about the design of this game because we it, it happened so emergently among like a group of people. I was just the person who submitted it. So uh, a pair of people might be arguing if they had played the weenus, they might be able to try shifting the tone of the conflict or the argument into. Um, a collective sense and if they can start speaking as a we from uh like you know in their conflict it changes what conflict means we had this idea that like conflict isn't possible in um or it was the way it was uh, it was conflict is possible but disagreement is impossible when you are in uh in a state of uh, of collectiveness because you can just the way just like the uh, like a individual might feel in conflict with themselves a collective conscious can have a disagreement or uh, uh, just like just <laughs> mixed up. i mean you're, it sounds to me like you're talking about conflict that is so different from how we experience interpersonal conflict that you're struggling to even explain it because of a dearth of language that we have for it which is amazing on so many levels it's such a weird (laughs) feeling (laughs) Um, uh, the gist of it is what happens if uh instead of um you know having an argument where one person is trying to you know dominate with their point of view and the other person is doing the same thing instead both people are working toward figuring out how to resolve the situation from the point of view of the collective uh need and that becomes, you know, becomes smoother when uh, when the language is supporting it, uh, because we have a lot of language to describe our individuation and our uh, and our and our self. Um, we have a lot of uh, ways of talking about like um, our separate personalities, but we don't have uh, we don't have patterns for talking about our our group identities. This is such like a breakthrough moment for me when you're talking about nonviolent communication as a game right like as a okay this is we're going to change our language in this way and engage that way and then see how doing that how accepting these different rules of of how we talk to each other of conversation how that changes outcomes and okay so this is really important to me because i have found nonviolent communication which i will link a very good I'll link a very good summary of it in the in the show notes. So like take a pause if you've not heard of this kind of modality before and check it out. But I found that it can be so incredibly useful and it can change the tone of conversation. It can change how people interact with each other and their relationships and what they can do so much. It's awesome. But also it can be I'm I'm gonna now be able to describe this as like power gamed. Like people can really kind of play the system of it a little bit and be like, oh, I'm technically following the rules of nonviolent communication. I'm here with my I statements. But at the same time, I'm like still just trying to push for what I want and kind of like manipulating those 
those communication rules without kind of entering into the spirit of the game. And this this was distressing to me before because I was like, well, I don't know if I can like really get behind this now. But now I'm like, oh, it just means it needs to be hacked. Like it needs to be iterated. We found like these, we found a bunch of broken rules in it. And that doesn't mean that we need to like come up with a new thing or like ignore it or like have a big discourse about whether or not it is good. It's just like, oh, cool. I found a bunch of bugs. Let's tweak them. Yeah. Let's play with it. And I think that that's something that we don't recognize we have the power to do in every social system that we have uh, and that we're participating. So if we can, if we uh, recognize that fully and we have, I think, a game design literacy or a game literacy culturally, I think that that's uh, one way to empower us to build better social systems for each other. Absolutely. What are some of the ways that we can expand game literacy? Uh, I don't know. I don't know is a perfectly legit answer. (laughs) Um, It's a big one. It's a big question. I mean, one of them is, uh, is making games that are fun, I think, right? Like, uh, creating games that are that are interesting that that can I, I mean I think like if if people are playing more games uh, this is games literacy and then and, and you know I've talked to a lot of people who I've shared I've shared these ideas with a lot of people who hadn't considered this at all but if they are games players or games designers the idea clicks pretty quickly and I think it's uh, it's about bridging the um, the ability to or the, the it's about bridging um bridging kind of our, our stuckness and our like sort of lack of agency in uh, in the common world with uh, a kind of agency and um, design literacy through the play of games and the uh, proliferation of games. Um, I don't know, you know, I don't know how how useful this kind of uh, this kind of conversation is. Uh, I don't know, like like fifty years ago before like um, uh, games were as widespread. And even now it's tricky because you talk about games and people are, uh, are immediately thinking about video games. And so I'm always like, that's always like the first, uh, the first (laughs) thing that has to be uh, explored is uh, what are the games in your lives that aren't video games and the ones that aren't, uh, that aren't entertainment or rather just, you know, the ones that like, what are the games in your lives that are, uh, that, that can be, you know, closer and closer to recognizing that all things in your lives are games. What are the ones that that bear the most resemblance to the invisible games? Hmm. Okay, so Mount Kaz. Oh, sure. Because you were talking about gathering earlier. You were talking about gatherings of people and as as this opportunity to like institute systems and rules, um, but in a way that everyone participates in. So I want to talk to you about the about gatherings at at this. I don't know how you, how would you describe Mount Kaz. Um, we we've been calling it a renegade art space or a renegade community art center. Mount Kaz is uh, is a house in a small college town, uh, Corvallis, Oregon. And um, my partner and I moved out of the Bay Area about a year and a half ago, and we moved into this house and just found that we had like a lot more space than we were used to having, uh, being in the Bay Area and renting like a room. Uh, in you know my my the place that I was renting you know we had a, we had a shared living room that was like that we used but it was like pretty small. My partner's uh, San Francisco apartment was like two bed uh, two bedrooms, one of which was the living room, so there was just the you know room for two bedrooms and like a kitchen. And we came to this house, and uh, it's in a smaller town, so uh, rent is cheaper and um, and space is more available and. We have like two living rooms and we have an extra bedroom and we have all the space. And we thought that it doesn't quite make sense to us to just have it for ourselves. We had been used to uh, uh, making events and uh, and uh, gatherings when we were in the Bay Area. And the only thing that it just made, it just made sense to us to share this space and to turn it into a space that others um, would come to and uh, that had a kind of life that existed through through a community coming in and out rather than just uh, two of us um, uh, living here. So uh, we started uh, we started with like this idea that a house could be a retreat center and any art institution could be broken down by uh, or rather arts institutions could be replaced by people sharing more. 
And uh, we were thinking about doing a retreat center here, and we ended up doing um, a uh, a residency program in uh, in our guest bedroom, which we've had uh, several uh, several artists come to so far. And with our living room spaces, we've just been hosting events um, every month and creating a space that people can come to and uh, and make things happen. That is so rad. What are some of the unexpected things that have happened at Mount Kaz? Uh, well, the first thing that we did was uh, we just named all the rooms. So uh, Mount Kaz came from the idea that like uh, our living room was going to be a, uh, a grove and um, our other common space was going to be a meadow. And then we just kind of went from there. And our kitchen is now the swampy bog and the bathroom is the waterfall. And uh, and we started naming stuff. And, um, and that kind of helped us shift away from this sense that any space was, uh, was singularly purposed, that, uh, that, you know, the space is just for uh, a dining room, but instead that it is an open space where things can happen. And uh, I think the most surprising thing has just been the versatility of these places. We end up just moving. We, we've, we configured the Grove in like five different ways for a reading, for a dance performance, for a music performance, and, you know, shifted in all these different ways. And it's really, really nice just to see the possibility of what a, a home space can look like. Yeah, absolutely. When things are used in different ways, like it brings your attention to different aspects of a space. Right, because you kind of see a space in in terms of how you use it and its utility sometimes, and that can kind of put some blinders on. You can get a little too focused. Yeah, and you know, again, that that's uh, that's something that I learned from parkour too, or an instinct that I think I gained from parkour, because it 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 took us to all these different urban spaces where we looked at a wall differently than we were supposed to, than it was meant for. And instead of a wall being a barrier, instead it was now like a, a toy for us. Instead of keeping us out of something, you know, and, and our purpose isn't to break in, but our purpose I think is to be able to reimagine our spaces and reimagine our the ways that our bodies can exist in those spaces. So Things that are meant to uh, to slow us down uh, became something that uh, that we would use to uh, to change our position or uh, be in different places. And uh, things that are meant to separate areas um, become become the the bridge for them. I can I can see the sort of just the value of feeling a little bit of resistance to the encroaching feeling of rules. Right. I think that spaces are more consciously designed than maybe like earlier in the 20th and 21st century. And that's cool. And design opens up a lot of possibilities. But also, again, you can have this feeling like, well, I wasn't consulted on how my neighborhood looks right now. Have you ever read um, uh, Christopher Alexander's uh, Pattern Language? I have not read that book. I have only heard Jay Lee and Jason Morningstar talk about it, which is a very fun talk. But tell tell me about your experience with the source material. Yeah, it's fascinating. I um I only ran across it like uh, I guess earlier this year. So one of the reasons that I I, I came to Corvallis was to I guess <laughs> abandon the art life for a little bit, or at least like that kind of um, uh, dedicated like what's the right word like. I want to use fervent because that's what Jackson <laughs> used, um, but like kind of like dedicated um, uh, struggle for like an uh, an artistic like a meaningful artistic life as like this kind of soul way of being. Or I I felt like I needed to shift away from that um, and explore uh, another part of uh, of who I am and who I could be. And so I moved back to work with my dad, who's been a builder for uh, for decades, um, home builder. And, you know, we're working on this project and uh, building a house. <laughs> and so I picked up this book about architecture, like actually for architecture, which has been used for like every other kind of architecture, but no one talks about it as much in the context of like actual home building. <laughs> Um, yeah, but the, but the philosophy of it is, uh, is that like, uh, you know, we can give people tools to design, uh, small things, right? Like, ev- like from the largest to the most, uh, minuscule part of our lives can, uh, you know, every, every built part of our lives can be, uh, designed by the people who use them rather than the people who are kind of like overlooking the entire course of things and designing everything for, you know, in a sense, an audience, we can do those ourselves. And, uh, you know, one of the, one of the principles that they have is that the 
organic order that comes from people slowly building up their spaces over time is kind of the most beautiful uh, it comes up with uh, creates the most beautiful uh versions of uh of cities yeah i think it's just uh just like the pattern language kind of and uh and timeless way of building speaks to this idea that um that we can kind of uh, slowly and incrementally add to the things that we uh, that we engage with, and we can do that consciously and deliberately, and um, and over time those organically become uh, things of beauty, rather than us needing to kind of create large systems that manage to fix everything all at once. Part of the philosophy of a pattern language is a uh, architectural reaction to modernism and uh, the kind of uh, urban planning modernism that led to to famous architects or like really high profile architects trying to design cities entirely from like from the uh, top down it's it's interesting to think about the the historical context of all of these things because this kind of stuff was happening at a time where um where communism was uh was you know a a big uh force in the uh in the world and it was, uh, and it was uh, something that was becoming very totalitarian. And that totalitarian kind of um, inclination wasn't limited to uh, to just communist states, but also to you know urban planning. Um, people were using that idea of like uh, you know one person or one group of people can come up with the best system for everyone to live. And they can design, um, uh, you know, buildings and streets and uh, and and facilities, you know, with their with their um, their expertise and authority. They can uh, they can come up with the best way for people to live. And a pattern language and a, uh, a timeless way of building suggests that that's actually not how things have been for uh, for most of our history. We haven't had the we haven't had the uh, the means to do so much all at once and instead our most beautiful places are most comfortable places and the ones that we cherish are ones that that slowly built up over time uh so they offer a method to uh to give the tools of design over to the people who are actually using these spaces and you know suggest that uh suggest that an anti-authoritarian uh way of design is healthier (laughs) and more beautiful yeah, th- this is very refreshing for me because I do see this kind of tension between a lot of the very design-minded people who I speak with, you know, who want to make great things and want to improve people's lives by designing better systems, but often that can really sound like I- I'll I'll build them a really nice cage, you know? Yeah, I respect all of I I think that their intentions are good, right? It's not like it's not a question of like good or evil here. I think that we have been trapped in a in a century of uh of thinking that has mm, tended toward uh toward this um assumption that celebrity and personality and sort of individual um What's a good word for it? Charisma. Yeah, charisma, but also like like expert. I guess just expertise, right? Is uh, is what we need to look for. And this is like you know this is this is the case in uh, for for like you know our leaders a lot of times, but also it's this case for um, about like the way that we look toward other things for authority. You know, like um, I think maybe I'm getting in the weeds here, but like I think um, with the decline of uh, of the influence of religion. Uh, we are looking for other kinds of authorities rather than looking for ways to to not need authority. I think we have a tendency to look for authority in in leadership and also authority in like like through science, right? To say that like you know um, or or design, right? Like this design methodology is the authoritarian or like the the authority on how we design something, and therefore it's going to be a best, and therefore we're going to like make arguments for it. This confluence of uh, submission to authority. And marketing can like makes uh makes some scary things. And uh, something that I am drawn to right now is um and you know something that like this I'm, uh, this isn't new right like um but but I think it's it, it bubbles up more and more as this kind of bottom up uh, put the people in in charge of their own lives way of uh, of reorganizing our our world. And that all starts with little little experiences that just remind them where they are. 
remind them what they can do. Oh, I love that. So for, you know, for our, like our house, right. It's, it's nothing like, we're not trying to change uh, very much. We can't do very much with like, you know, I don't know what this is like 900 square feet, right. Or a thousand square feet of, uh, of, of home, but we can, you know, we can gather like, like 30 people at a time. And I think that uh, in those moments, um, we can give them uh, an experience. You know, we've been we, we've had a LARP in here. We've had uh, we've had uh, a bunch of different kinds of performance and uh, we can give them an experience that both is um, hopefully nourishing or, or refreshing and entertaining, but also helps them um, uh, see that their homes have a lot more possibility than they might have been thinking about. And and by extension, maybe they they as people have more possibility than they have uh, they have been assuming. Yeah, just open that up. As as we get to the end of our discussion, sandbox, which was kind of connected to come out and play. You know, actually, for one thing, I'm I'm just interested in how the very very different project of come out and play in in San Francisco, like thinking about now the work that you're doing with Mount Kaz and how different it is, but I'm, I'm betting you anything that there are lessons that you're bringing from come out and play to what you're doing now. If only that I want to do something different. I mean, I'm, I'm curious about the contrasts in the, in those for you. Yeah. I mean, I, I wish I could, I wish I had like time to talk about all the steps that, that kind of uh, happened in between, right? But um, I mean, I'll try. I, I do think like somewhere along the way, Let's see. I've 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 done a lot of different kinds of things um, that that do kind of feel disparate, you know. And uh, and I haven't. I guess we haven't talked about all of these, uh, you know, off mic either. But like, you know, I, I studied linguistics and I was a unicycle basketball player. I, I did not know I that. Did a lot of parkour. <laughs> Um, yeah, and you know, I've, and I've, I've been in a lot of different places, um, and somewhere along the way, I think I remember thinking about how I was jumping around to all these things that felt so different, and it felt like there was no chain between them. There was no like uh, link between them all, and I was just kind of it, it felt aimless, and and I was kind of depressed about that. I think when I was thinking about that, I started looking for the ways that they connected, and I think. Sometime around then, someone asked me, like, uh, you know, how did you get to uh, where you are now? How did you become the person you are now? And I started to see that, like, you know, uh, unicycling led me to into being interested in, like, just weird stuff that no one else was trying yet. Or that, like, wasn't that, that I found meaning in, in doing things uh, that that weren't just for uh, social validation, I guess that led me to uh, to doing parkour, which was like at the time when I started, just like totally burgeoning and new, and you know it was just like something we 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 could barely find videos for, and parkour led to me led me to making games um, in in urban spaces, and um, and that led me to to wanting to yeah come out and play, and uh, and that that scene led me to uh, wanting to design. Uh, spaces and change the way that we interact with spaces. And I think that's, you know, that might be the, the, um, a, a close link to, uh, to what we're doing Mount Kaz, because I think that Mount Kaz is a game, right? I think what we're doing in this house, uh, when we're, when we're, uh, temporarily changing the context that this house is used for, uh, not just as a place to eat and sleep, but also as a place to uh, to sing and to and to dance and to gather and to uh, to share. That is a kind of game that we're designing for uh, for this specific space. I don't know how Sandbox connects. Here. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, it's in there. But that was a place where. From what I understand, it was this sort of outgrowth of the Come Out and Play Festival where um, you could come and play test outdoor kind of larger scale games. And what what I loved about looking through the kind of records of it is that it was very much just this like Facebook group. You know, there would be like an event with just like like a MS Paint picture of a map being like come here at this time like just the sort of immediacy of it was very appealing and i i'd like to hear about your experience of of it yeah it was great you know when i when i let's see when i was directing come out and play i did i directed come out and play for two years um taking over for Catherine herdlick who started it with a bunch of other folks in new york and you know i ran the festival and 
I met a bunch of amazing people, and there were a lot of people who were interested in this kind of this space as a as an artistic medium. Um, but we had nothing to offer them except uh, except this annual festival where they could play. And I wanted a space where I had more opportunities to invite people to try out this thing. Instead of something annually, I wanted something more regular. And this was just from my um, my experiences running parkour community and uh, and being a part of uh, you know gathering people uh, on a regular basis. So we made Sandbox as this uh, as uh, you know it was inspired by um, uh, Sandpit, which was the hide and seek London based uh, uh, outdoor games uh, group. Uh, they did something called Sandpit, so you know that's a, it's a direct uh, name borrowing. It's the Americanization of theirs, and I think uh, the New York Come Out and Play had a, had an event called Come Out and Play Test. So we didn't have anything in the Bay Area at the time, and uh, so I, I created this event, and I was really interested in um, the ways that there could be a dialogue between designers and players, which didn't feel like the dialogue in the sense that like players who are interested in stepping into the designer role or learning more about design could become uh, could could do that what I had experienced in a lot of games playtesting and user research kind of spaces was that it was it felt very one-sided it felt like the uh, the designers are gathering information from the uh, from the players and this is like when I was working in video games um, the designers are gathering information from the players and like kind of using this to make a better game but uh, what is th- what what kind of things do we have to offer the players if they're interested in coming into this space so sandbox was modeled after an after poetry open mics I was thinking about the idea that like in uh, in the poetry uh, in the poetry community it's a community of people that share with each other rather than a uh, commercial model of, uh, of research and sandbox was a place where anyone could bring something to share and there would be a feedback uh, there would be like feedback periods after every game and then we'd go out and have a, have a drink or have dinner afterwards and that, all of those things were built out uh, built into uh, the way that we we organized that event you know, with the intention of uh, giving people an opportunity to try making games if they've never done it before. And it being kind of this, I don't know, equitable is the word. Uh, Just the idea that everybody bring what you got and you'll give something and you'll get something. This this idea of sharing, it seems like a sharing space. Yeah. Yeah. uh, There's no one, no one there who is, uh, who is better than anyone else. And actually it's a better space when, when there are some like terrible games and there are some like magnificent games because it shows to, uh, to new designers or to, uh, to interested players that games can be bad, (laughs) you know, like we're, we're often given so many, like, like uh, we're given like the sanitized versions of everything. And uh, I was, uh, I, I keep thinking about this, uh, this moment. I went to this, uh, this uh, installation by the artist Tom Sachs, and they build like, uh, they kind of build uh, large, really impressive installations out of, uh, out of like found materials and kind of scrap materials. So they made like a, like a moon lander out of like plywood and steel and like a bunch of <laughs> a bunch of stuff. Um, but but one of the things that they do is they they uh, like every time someone hits their head, like when they were building it, every time someone hit their head on like on the door opening, they would like leave a mark there. And like they would leave all their like measurements and like uh, all the stuff that they wrote on the walls there to kind of like show that this process uh, that there's a process of creating this thing that that, um, you know, they're making of the thing. Uh, doesn't start as this like kind of fully formed pristine vision of like something that is going to definitely work, you know, but it's something that evolves and grows and like uh, organically organically becomes the thing that you uh, that you you see. I love the idea of celebrating and and uplifting bad games, games that just failed to do what you wanted them to do. Let's totally do that more. Like when we, because because part of making a game is making bad games. You know, and usually the first version of anything you make is going to be kind of bad. And like, I don't know, but we just put those away. I don't know. It would be interesting to just say, like, here's this game that I made. It totally failed. Check it out, everybody. Look at look at this garbage. (laughs) Yeah, I'm also really uh, influenced by um, by this idea of like game poems. Um, I read Harry Giles uh, wrote a primer uh, to game poems, and he kind of talks about this like uh, this idea that brings together 
instructional poetry and um, and poetic games and like all sorts of things that might be classified as game poems. But part of them is that a lot of them are like unplayable. You know, like if you look at uh, Yoko Ono's... Um, I'm so... Uh, oh my gosh. I'm sorry. You're the first guest to talk about Yoko Ono. And she's like <laughs> one of my favorite game designers. She's like my my white whale backstory guest too. Like if it... Listen, if anybody listening has a connection with Ono, hook me up. Sorry, finish what you're saying. I just, I exploded. That's that's fine. Yeah, I mean, she's great, right? Like the work that she does is, uh, is, is um, I don't know, I, I got the chance to see uh, see a retrospective that she, uh, that she had at uh, one of the modern art museums. And uh, they had they had bag piece there, which is this uh, piece where the instruction they, they have this big like black bag, and the instruction is two people go inside, they take off all their clothes, they exchange clothes, and then they do that again, and then they come out of the bag, and you know they, you can kind of see out this bag from the inside, but you can't really see what's happening inside uh, from when you're on the outside. So. You know, she does these like these really strange pieces, and a lot of them, if you look at like uh, grapefruit or acorn, they're kind of unplayable. They kind of only happen in the mind, but like those ideas are as important as like the as the actual playability of a game sometimes. So when we talk about like you know putting out bad games, it's like the the ideas of these games are are worthwhile. And um, the practice of coming up with ideas is part of the practice of, of making games. And also the practice of imagining like a kind of way that something can be played is part of imagining a new world. And those tiny sort of unplayable ideas, like encountering things that almost work or that you want to work but don't, I think that gets so many sort of creative things moving for you, right? Because you're like, oh, I really want this to work. Why doesn't it? What what is the piece of it that I want to work? What aspect of it could work? And sharing that kind of stuff, you know, you might be able to inspire someone who has an idea that that allows that to work. It's worth letting that um, exist in the world, and and letting you know, letting any kind of creative pursuit be a communal one. Letting one, letting it be something that is uh, that is shared and um, and you know celebrated together. And you know, I've been I've been really uh, enamored with the LARP community because I do see that kind of stuff happening. And I think part of it is uh, similar to why I was drawn to uh, to these other kind of weird sports, is because when the community is relatively small, you have no choice but to kind of share more and work together, and you know that that creates a kind of intimacy and a shared context that uh that that builds a, a more yeah explorative i guess um an experimental community uh rather than one that's like product focused yeah and like one that's really focused on like check out this amazing thing i did aren't i amazing yeah right <laughs> like what is the cure for status <laughs> what is the cure for status okay i have an answer oh, oh whoa awesome i did <laughs> I, not I expect an answer i don't know if it's, it's, it's the right end <laughs> um but i've been working on this project called uh, the goblin service union and the idea is that it's a international union for people who want to do mischief as service to the world we bring out our inner goblins and uh perform mischievous, playful acts in public to shake off the sense of dullness and stuckness uh, for bystanders and onlookers. And uh, so uh, one, of the, one of the rules uh, that I've been thinking about is, uh, is how do you um, recognize the importance of, uh, of like leadership and organizational, um, like just organizational roles without, without like glorifying them? And so in this case, I, uh, I have established a rule that, uh, that in this group, the leader of the group is always known as the butt. They're the first butt of, uh, of every joke. And they're always kind of uh, uh, pranked and, uh, and poked at until they step down. And so, uh, so we, we create this role that is, uh, that is uh, necessary and, uh, and celebrated after the fact. But uh, while it's happening, we, uh, we, we mess with them. I guess this is more about like the question of leadership and, uh, but, you know, maybe, maybe in status we could, we could do that too. Like if we, if we kind of, um, I feel like it's related. <laughs> I feel like, you know, it's, it's a, it's a big question too. It's like, uh, like it's an important question that, uh, that uh, we are in a society and a culture that really wants to create hierarchies and move up and down them. And I think that that's a, 
that's an effect of a hyper-capitalist society where our social capital is part of like the, the power that we have. Yeah, yeah, it's like another good that we can produce or hang on to or hoard or exchange yeah commodify yeah, right? yeah. yeah it's become like we have we have gotten to the place where uh where everything has been commodified and you know and and the last thing that we have to commodify is ourselves and so we're doing that i don't know i feel like that whole last section could be cut because i don't no. know where i was going with no it. it's actually the most important <laughs> thing that we've talked about this entire time like just thinking about like self as product and you know i'll leave it up to our listeners to wonder why we do that and to be gentle with themselves if they have noticed themselves doing that, because I understand, like, at a certain point, you're like, I need to survive and I don't know how. And ugh, ugh. Yeah. I mean, I guess, like, the maybe I have a better answer than what I offered earlier in terms of hierarchy is um, to to be really intentional about gathering a supportive community around you. I think a sense of, uh, I think a lot of our kind of um, social scarcity and, uh, and, and sense of, uh, of anxiety and fear come from the way that we've been isolated from each other and the way that we've uh, bought into a narrative that like we have to be responsible entirely for, for every success that we have and every failure. And if we can um, really earnestly build a community, a local one, usually uh, with a lot of dialogue and a lot of active support. Um, I think that, you know, that, uh, that uh, alleviates the need for being better than other people and, uh, and for, for hating yourself when you, when you uh, don't live up to something. Yeah. That sense of competition. You know what? I think this takes us back to language. Have you ever read The Dispossessed? By Ursula Le Guin. I love that book. That is that is. I, I have claimed it as my it's favorite, my favorite book. book. It is. Uh... Oh, okay. Okay. There's <laughs> yes. this moment where where Shevek is coming from this you know collectivist anarchist society, and he's sort of on the ship headed to the the planet um, that is like sort of hyper capitalist, hyper individualist, and someone talks about like something being higher up or it refers to someone as a higher up or something like that and he note he's starting to notice that in the language of this planet that he's going to how they talk about how good something is is very much like about higher and lower and he's translating it in his mind to like oh we would say like either closer to the center or further from the center when we're doing that kind of like comparative language or like how how happy we are how how pleased we are with something when we're evaluating. So I'm I'm thinking about that right now. Maybe that can be the next language restriction game. <laughs> yeah, I mean I, I think uh that that was that book was very much on my mind when I was writing this. Just to think about how language affects uh the way that we that we allow ourselves to think, I guess. And to think about like poetry and and the use of metaphor as ways in which we we understand the world. I, I don't really buy into the idea that language um, defines how we think, but it certainly reflects how we think, and um, and it can be a tool toward uh, toward changing um, how we think if we want to. I think that's a lovely note to end on. I, I mean, we could keep talking about this for hours. I'm I'm very quickly realizing, but we should wrap it up. All right, fine. <laughs> I would love to keep talking, <laughs> but uh, but I'll save it for when you come visit us here. Yeah, I want to come to Mount Kaz. Semester's almost up. Yeah, it would be great to have you. Um, you know, we we have an opening, or we have openings. Like we haven't really scheduled it. We don't schedule that far ahead anyway. So that works well for my current lifestyle. <laughs> um, well, if if people want to get in touch with you and they they want to continue this conversation. Uh, or they want to know more about your projects and what you're doing, where should they find you? Let's see. My uh, my Twitter handle is at LethalBeef. And uh, my website is uh, kong.cat. And you can put a link to that, I guess, in the show notes. Uh, but really, like, I'm kind of into just having conversations with people. And I've been trying to move into a lifestyle where, like, we just chat one-on-one. So send me an email, I guess. You can put my email on the, uh, yeah, I'll do that. On the show notes. Yeah, and I, I uh, earnestly welcome anyone to uh, send me a message, and I'll write. I'll write back. Uh, yeah, and uh, if you want to play the Weenus, uh, you can check out the Golden Cobra archives. There, uh, they should be in there in the anthology, I think. 
Yeah, yeah. Right now they have them all up, so they can check out the PDF for free. Just take a gander. Even just even just reading it, I think, does really cool, cool things to your brain. Um, but playing it would be even better, obviously. <laughs> well, thank you for that invitation. That's beautiful. And uh, and thank you for coming on and, and having this convo. It was really, really great. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks again to Albert for joining me, and as always, thank you for listening. If you have thoughts on today's show, you can email me, that's backstorypodcast at gmail.com, or you can hop on Twitter and follow at Backstorycast. Backstory is hosted by me, Alex Roberts, and produced by the talented Alex Sisk. We're proud to be a member of the One Shot Podcast Network, and you can go to oneshotpodcast.com to find more great shows like A Woman with Hollow Eyes, a Woman with Hollow Eyes is a podcast adaptation of OneShot's live-streamed dramatic Invisible Sun actual play. Discover a world of magic, secrets, and supernatural civic disputes in our unique take on Satyrain. In the first season, James D'Amato, Kat Cool, and SNL writer Alan Linick are led on a mind-bending adventure by GM and former backstory guest Darcy Ross. Even if you already saw the streams, you will want to listen to the podcast for the incredible soundtrack composed and edited by Will Lovendahl. You can find the show by searching for A Woman with Hollow Eyes or Darcy Ross on iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. Music for Backstory is provided by Ujiko. The track is called Thinking of You, and you can hear more by searching UJICO on YouTube, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your chill beats. Talk to you later, friends. Thank you.